please join me in welcoming John Connolly and Neil Gaynor. I'm not entirely sure I'm the better for having watched that, I have to say. Um, one of the questions that's often asked of these things is, is what people were reading when they began, uh, when they were younger. And I know you came from a, a bookish household, but I thought given the night that's in it, what were you watching as a child? <laughs> was I watching as a child? Um, anything I could get my hands on, the same as, pretty much the same as, as books. I mean, books, it was just whatever was around. I mm -hmm. was just one of those kids who, whatever was on the shelves, I would read it, attempt it. And if it didn't work for me then, I'd come back to it. And but given that, given that film, um, film and television have been so prevalent in your work, um, and there is, I think, a very a strong visual component to what you do, I'm just wondering if there were particular films, your particular film and, and your memories from childhood that have stuck with you. Ah... Let's see, Son of Dracula. Really? Terrible film. I tried watching it as an adult. And uh, it, it's pretty awful. But as a seven-year-old, the discovery that you couldn't keep evil things out by shutting a door because they could come underneath in mist form, it ruined me for years. Cause <laughs> Until that point, I thought, okay, as long as I shut the door, I'm, I'm safe. And then suddenly, I wasn't. Um, Doctor Who. Doctor Who kind of did weird things to the inside of my head as a kid. Just, just you know, things like the idea of the TARDIS. Um, and this strange kind of black and white world in which uh, everything was potentially malevolent. Um, I, I think was was huge and important. Which which doctor did you grow up with? Or which doctor um, do you consider yours? My doctor was probably the second, Patrick Troughton. Uh, William, I mean, I remember. I'm old enough to remember the William Hartnell doctor, but I found him a bit scary and intimidating. Whereas Patrick Troughton was my doctor, and uh, John Pertwee was definitely still the doctor, but a weird one. And then after that, there were actors playing the Doctor. That's right, because I come from the, the Tom Baker generation. So mm -hmm. I think it's a bit like music. It is that when you're, you're in that formative period, it is the one who accompanies you through it, perhaps, that, that, that resonates. Well, it's that, that, that glorious line that the golden age of science fiction is when you're 12. <laughs> and probably the golden age of Doctor Who, you know, your Doctor is the one that you carry from age sort of, you know, 9 through to 12, if possible. And then did you, given that you've written two episodes, did you actively, was that something, did they approach you or were you the one who came forward and said, this is something that I've always had a connection with? Um, I've been asked to write Doctor Who books over the years. And I'd always say no, but when, when it comes back, I want to write an episode. So it, it was something that I've been saying for a long time. Um, and you, your experience of it? I, well, I learned an awful lot in Doctor I probably wouldn't have become showrunner on Good Omens and, and made Good Omens the same way that I did, honestly, if it hadn't have been for my Doctor Who experiences, um, which, which 
I, I wrote two episodes, one of which won every award it was possible for an episode of Doctor Who to win, um, and one of which is widely regarded as a dog. <laughs> and, and the problem for me was that, as far as I was concerned, the two scripts were pretty much of a level of quality. It was just one of them got shot, and the other one didn't really. It got mucked about with, and bits got thrown away because of budget changes, and then people got cast that I wasn't comfortable with, and then only after they cast and did their bit did people go, well, they can't really act, so we cut around them. <laughs> and that scene that you wrote, uh, we couldn't really afford it, but it's okay, because the art department wrote their own version of it, and to do with what the art department could do, and, and at the end of it, I sort of look at this thing and I go, well, made sense and had a point when it was, and it all went somewhere when it was a script and, and all that stuff went away. And that for me was actually, I think if I hadn't have had that experience um, at the point where <coughs> Terry Pratchett informed me that, that I had to write and make good omens and then he died, uh, leaving it as a kind of last request, something I couldn't actually do anything about. Um, probably I would have just written the scripts and handed them over. But the amount of frustration that episode of Doctor Who caused me um, actually meant I was sort of like, right, well, then if I'm going to do this and I'm doing it for Terry and I'm doing it properly, then I have to do it properly. And so there's been a lot of... So I got to cast it. So I, I didn't just write it, I showrun it, which means that at the point when people go, ah, now we've, uh, we've looked over the script and the budget and uh, you have to lose that sequence. And I go, no. <laughs> if I take that out, the whole thing stops. There's a 30 minute sequence that stops making sense. I understand that it's easy to chop. And I understand we have to chop something, so I will chop this thing over here, which I can remove without losing, you know, without destroying something. But otherwise, you will sit and watch half an hour of TV and go, well, what was the point of that then? And so, no. But had you not had that experience again quite early in your career, because it Neverwhere comes out of a, a slightly similar experience of, of having something that you'd written reach the screen in a way that didn't satisfy you or involved too many compromises. Yeah, I, I always feel with Neverwhere that the big problem with Neverwhere, though, wasn't... I was just trying to make it at the wrong time. Um, if we tried to make Neverwhere about six years later, I think it, we could have done something wonderful. Um, but at the time that we tried to make it, there wasn't anybody at the BBC who understood what we were trying to do. Um, there was nobody technically capable of doing the kind of thing that we were asking for. Um, it wasn't until the 15th anniversary DVD commentary that I discovered that due to a certain amount of confusion in Neverwhere, one of the reasons why the picture looked so appalling all the way was that... Um, it was the first thing they'd ever shot on a system called Digibeta. And they were planning to run it through a film filter, although they forgot. Um, 
but they had told the lighting cameraman they were going to be running it through a film filter. So, and he didn't really understand that, what that meant. So basically it was shot on video and lit for film. Hmm. Um, which is one reason why in Neverwhere, even everything was done on location and everywhere looks like it's a cardboard set. And it takes an immense amount of skill to achieve that. <laughs> um, but never, I mean, Neverwhere was interesting. Neverwhere hurt. And, but I was looking back on it, I got an immense amount of what I wanted onto the screen. I just wasn't doing it again in a way that I had control over. But then um, how did that then feed into the novel that follows? What I'm curious about is what is the relationship perhaps between the film as a visual medium and the books that you write? How does one feed into the other? Um, put it this way, if I had loved and been completely satisfied with Neverwhere, there never would have been a Neverwhere mm. novel. I would have just gone, you know, yes, that. In the same way I would probably never do a novelization of The Doctor's Wife. I'm very happy with it. Um, go watch that thing. That's <laughs> great. Um, so Neverwhere the novel for me was like my chance to go, no, this was what I meant. Good Omens, the TV series, isn't my chance to go, no, this is what I meant. Um, because I feel like Terry and I did something wonderful together um, almost 30 years ago, and I'm, I'm still proud of it. But it's very much um, my chance to say, okay, well, this is what we would have done if we'd done it for television. And uh, if we'd done it for television on the kind of budget and in the kind of technical way that you can do it today, and if I could do it with the kind of casting. Would, do you think, had, had Terry lived, he would be... Would it, would it have been something he wanted to be directly involved with, or would, it be, would he have been happy to bequeath the responsibility for it to you? It's a really weird and impossible to answer question. Um, <laughs> Ter Terry and I had a deal on Good Omens, which was we did it together or not at all. And that applied even to things like, you know, back in about 2007, we did a thing for our publisher, which was just, you know, Crowley and Aziraphale's New Year's resolutions. And it was maybe, you know, 15 New Year's resolutions, 16, which meant we wrote about eight each. Um, and so we did it together. And we were very much looking forward to letting somebody else get on with it and go and watch it, except that we couldn't find a writer who seemed to get it, and, uh, or who wasn't intimidated by it. You know, we found, we had some, talked to some great writers who were like, yeah, I'm not touching it. Um, <laughs> so, I don't know if Terry had remained in good health, if he would have turned around to me and gone, okay, you have to do it. Mm -hmm. he, he, he wrote me this letter basically saying, you have to do this because there's nobody else out there who has the understanding for and passion for the old girl uh, that you and I have, and I want to watch this. So the idea was that, that I was going to make it for him to watch before the dark came. And then the dark came sooner than either of us had imagined. We both, I think, thought that we had, you know, Terry would have a 
another four or five years of slowly diminishing twilight. And instead, suddenly he was gone. You interviewed him, if I'm right, for, for, the, for the Color of Magic. Um, what was the point of connection, do you think? And it's quite unusual, perhaps, for a, a writer to come along and interview another writer and then suddenly to find themselves a little bit down the line collaborating on a book that then becomes hugely loved by a great many people. You did seem to have quite an extraordinary relationship. Um, I think it was the fact that we had this lunch. It was the first interview Terry had ever done. Um, for years, we used to tell people it was in a Chinese restaurant. And uh, then, you know, a couple of years ago, I ran into my, I found my desk diary from 1985 and went looking for, I went, oh, it was the middle of February. And it wasn't the middle of February, it was the end of January. And we're in Bertarelli's Italian restaurant, you know. So, um, but mostly what I remember was we had, it was the same kind of mind. Um, he tended to go lighter than I did. I tend to go much darker. But I remember the point during the lunch um, where we were talking about how just uh, grimoires, occult grimoires. And um, Terry mentioned that he created the, the Necrotelecomnicon in his next book, the book of the telephone numbers of the dead. And I admitted that in, in a story I was writing, the grimoire was the Liber Fulvarum Paganarum, the book of yellow colored pages. <laughs> and it's like, oh, same, same head, same way of putting together things. Um, and what would happen? And then after that, we ran into each other a few times, just got on. And then <clears throat> my phone would start ringing. And it would, he'd just sort of say, uh, hello, it's me, which is how he always would <laughs> announce himself. Listen, um, what's funnier? And he would say, Can I, is, is it funnier if, a, if you're a dwarf, but, you, but you're actually really tall, but you've been brought up by a dwarf, so you think you'd... And he'd do this thing, and, and, and he'd normally give me either ors, and normally I'd go, well, you can, can't you do both? And he'd say, how? And I'd go, well, you can do this and that and that. And he slammed the phone down. <laughs> um, and I, I remember the point where somewhere in about, what, 86, um, I think, early 86, I guess, um, he took me aside at a convention or at a pub and, and said, I've got this idea for a book, maybe even a sequence of books. And he basically pitched me The Long Earth, books at me and, and once he'd finished I said yeah it sounds, sounds really good but I think you should do a book about death because he's your best character and he's like absolutely not no and explained in great detail why you could not write a book about death and then three days later the phone rang and I picked, I picked up the phone and a voice said it's me <laughs> it's called Mort you bastard and put the phone down <laughs> Um, so uh, there, there was a sort of a, we, we, we knew that we meshed, and I'd written the first chunk, 
of Good Omens, the first 5,000 words. Um, sent it to Terry just as a friend to read. And then Sandman happened, and suddenly it was, it was put in a drawer. And uh, I remember Terry phoning one day and saying, yeah, that, that thing, you doing anything with it? And I said, no, I'm, I'm doing Sandman and Books of Magic. And he said, well, either you can sell me the idea, I know what happens next. Sell me the idea or we can do it together. And as far as I was concerned, that was just an awful lot like, you know, Michelangelo ringing you up and saying, hey, do you want to do a paint the ceiling this weekend? <laughs> so I said, right, let's do it together. And that was how did Terry that, and I began. Did that set a pattern for what follows? Because you're unusual in many ways, but particularly in your willingness to collaborate. I'm not naturally collaborative, as my, my other half will tell you, having tried to write with me. Um, that, that, but you seem to be very comfortable from the time, obviously, when you were doing graphic novels. Uh, you worked with the Reeves. You've worked with illustrators like Chris Riddell when you've been doing uh, the children's books. Do you, are you naturally collaborative, or do you, are they two kind of different hats? I go back and forth. Um, I love to have both. I'm, I'm incredibly happy to collaborate on things, because writing is an intrinsically lonely um, sort of profession. It's just you and a, and a keyboard and a screen, or you and a book, and you and blank pages, whatever. It, it's just you in a room. Um, so very often the joy of trying to do it with somebody, of writing together, working with an artist, getting somebody to send pages to and get stuff back, somebody you can talk to, is great. And then once you've done that, you go, actually, I don't want anybody telling me what to do or anything. And you go off and lock yourself in a room and write a novel on your own because that's fun too. Does that then, I'm wondering, does that then make you better suited, perhaps, to working in television and film, which are, by their nature, much more collaborative endeavours because everybody brings a certain skill set? And is then that maybe equipped you to do... So I want to come back to Good Omens because I'm sure a lot of people are curious about it. I'm just wondering, does that equip you? Does that provide you with a set of tools in a way that enables you to work more easily in that environment? Um, probably. Um, in that... It, it means that you probably need better people skills than some writers have. That was very um, diplomatically put. <laughs> well, I, you know, I, I remember writing American Gods, and by the time I finished writing American Gods, I'm not sure I'd spoken to anybody who wasn't in my immediate family for about two and a half years. And coming out into the world of these people who moved around and talked, it was just, it was just strange. Um, you know, I, I'd lost all social ability. The, um, it, it was very interesting with, with Good Omens because I had to develop a skill set to survive it very, very fast. And, um, and did. And, and one of the ways that I actually survived was with the uh, incredible support, I'm talking about collaboration, of the director, Douglas McKinnon who loved the book, got me, got who I was, and um, at the point where there were some people in the, you know, there were some producers who, who didn't stick around for very long, um, who were going, you know, what is this novelist doing, trying to tell us what to do? And, and Douglas was not like, no, actually, he, he, 
he, he understands this. He wrote it. It's 450 pages of script. He understands it better than anybody else. And, you know, listen to him. And where are you? Where are you in the process at the moment with Good Omens? Right now, we are um, in the edit. We're, we're in post-production. The goal is to hand in a finished six episode, six one-hour long episodes to Amazon. The BBC will hand it over to Amazon um, in December. And uh, I, think, I think we'll make it. Um, but it's, uh, you know, it, it's huge. I mean, that's the strangest thing about it, is just there's something like 250 speaking parts in it. There's uh, about 2,000 special effects shots. There's, it's enormous. Um, and, and it's all enormous in the service of not being enormous, of, of feeling like really it's just about, you know, some extraordinary people doing very ordinary things and some ordinary people having to do some very extraordinary things. Sure, there are people out there who are saying it's all very well you doing these TV series and, and films, but um, what about our Neverwhere sequel? Um, yeah, listen, I the Good Omens by the time it's done will have probably taken about five years of my life, and um, every now and again, I quietly curse Terry Pratchett <laughs> for having made a last request that I felt bound to honor. Um, you know, it, it, it's, um, you know, there's sort of points where I go, probably five books down about this point. Um, <laughs> on the other hand, I, this, you know, it, it is joyous. Mm -hmm. And I would never have done it. And it's an experience that I'm, I've, I have mostly loved. You know, I'm, there is that point where my wife would sort of say, especially when I come home and sort of fulminate about, you know, having to go off and make phone calls late at night, arguing about budget with people from Amazon or whatever. And she's like, why are you doing this? You're a writer. And it's like, yes, I know. <laughs> uh, I have a novel that is waiting for me to come back. Um, I'm, I'm 97 pages into it. I think it's a really good book. Um, I hope it will be there when I return. I think it will. There are, there are some books and some projects that you start and and if you're forced to drop them and you try and go back, there isn't really anything there. Um, but, you know, Coraline, I probably wrote, I think, the first third of in about 1991, and then wrote the last two thirds of it in 1998, 99, 2000. Um, it was there when I went back. Which brings us really full circle to the film we just watched. It, it does see it was the film when I was watching it. That there were so many just echoes, really, of Coraline. Mm. Was, it, was, it, was it an influence? Was it something, not a conscious one, perhaps, but was it there when you were writing? I, yeah, I don't know that it was a conscious one, but it was definitely... Um, it may, may tell you something about my daughter, Holly, who is now about 32, um, that... 
At about the age of uh, four or five, that was her favorite film. <laughs> um, had a big VHS uh, video cassette of it, and we would, it would, she'd put it on and just sit happily watching it. Um, so the idea of Caroline was very much that I wanted to write something for Holly. And I think the fact that she loved Caroline, uh, she loved this Alice, um, she loved The Wizard of Oz, and she loved writing me these stories that were terrifying. <laughs> you know, she'd come home from kindergarten, climb on my lap, and dictate stories in which a little girl normally called Holly um, would come home to discover that her mother had been taken over by an evil witch, replaced by an evil witch, and then she'd be imprisoned in the cellar and she'd have to escape with these ghost children who were also in the cellar and they'd have to try and go off to America to find their mother and the babies <laughs> with witches in pursuit. And I, I, you know, I mean, so I just tried to give her the stuff that she liked. <laughs> yeah, just a lifetime of therapy just seems to unfold with that story. I have one question before we want to open it. It's a personal one because I, I, I have a fascination with 80s music. And I want to go back, just memories of your first book. Your first book. My first, first which, book. First book, um, Duran Duran, yeah. the first four years of the Fab Five, yes. uh, which I have found a great description, the definitive 126-page trade paperback volume on the British pop group, which does sound like damning with faint praise. It implies that there might be many 126-page <laughs> trade. How, what you, just as a matter of curiosity, what, how did that arise, and what is your memory of doing um, that? I was, I was writing, while it was my first book to be published, it was the second book that I wrote. The first book that I wrote was actually with... Uh, Kim Newman, the, the film critic and writer, and um, we did a book together called Ghastly Beyond Belief, which was a collection of quotes from uh, terrible books and movies. <laughs> and um, Kim was working on a book for Proteus Publications called Nightmare Movies. And uh, he mentioned me as somebody that he was working with and somebody who knew something about pop music, which I think in, from Kim's mind was just that I you know, knew more than he did. Um, and so one day the phone rang and it was an editor named Kay Rowley at Proteus and she said, would you like to write a rock biography? I was like, oh, I would love that. What a great thing. Okay, I'd love to do, uh, can I do a Velvet Underground? I'd like to do probably a, maybe a Lou Reed as a, as a sort of spin-off of the Velvet Underground one. I'd love to do an Elvis Costello, obviously a David Bowie. And she said, ah, no, no, we know what books we want. And the next three that we have coming out uh, that we need written are Duran Duran, Def Leppard, or Barry Manilow. <laughs> uh, do you want who, to be shot, who hanged, you, or knifed? It was. Who, who do you want to do? And I thought, well, I don't want to have to listen to 25 Barry Manilow albums. <laughs> um, my friend Dave Dixon would love to write a Def Leppard book, and I would not. And at that point, I think Duran Duran had made three albums, and I, thought, I said, sure, I'll do Duran Duran, which I then mostly wrote by going down to... This sort of dates everything, because if you stop and think, as perhaps none of you ever have, um, but how you got information before there was an internet. 
Because now there's an internet. So if you want information, you just go and get it. Um, but I, there, there I was in 1984, age 23, about to write a book. And uh, so what I did was I went to the BBC and I said, I would like, and, and I said, I'd like uh, all of your press clippings on Duran Duran. And they, and I paid, I think, 80 pounds for them to photocopy all of their press clippings and walked away with a giant file. And that was the basis of, of what I did the book for. And I was kind of ashamed and embarrassed about it for a while. I was, it, it was a weird kind of thing, because when it came out, I looked at it and I thought, well, that was four years, I spent four months of my life writing a book that I would not have actually wanted to read. <laughs> and I don't think I'm ever gonna do that again. So that was, that was kind of big and important. But years later, um, through a variety of peculiar circumstances, I found myself a passenger on a yacht, uh, which was being crewed by Simon Le Bon. <laughs> and by day three, I'm, I'm going, oh, he's really nice. And um, I'm hanging around, and eventually I, I sidled over to him. And I said, I, I wrote a Duran Duran book. And he said, which one? <laughs> I said, it was uh, for, for Proteus. It was, uh, he said, the one with the gray cover. I said, yeah. He said, we like that. That was the best of them. Yeah. I was like, oh. <laughs> okay. And, and so at that point, I, I sort of came off the, you the we, I will never talk about this. I will never admit to it. <laughs> sort of crept into the biographies and things. I wonder if I ask you how you ended up with Simon Le Bon's yacht. I think it's probably another story. Um, it was somebody, the one it was that sank, sank, wasn't it? No, it was somebody else's yacht. Oh, okay. But he was crew on it. Right. You lead more of a rock star life than I do, clearly. Um, we're going to open it to the floor. Um, so our Ravi Mike is going around. Uh, there's a lady here in the front row who's prepared to set the ball rolling. Two ladies prepared to set the ball rolling. Um, uh, well, you first, and then the next lady, I think, perhaps. Hello. Hi. Hello. Uh, I'm just, I'm going to get a stage fright now, just simply because I'm talking to you, okay, for one minute or years. Okay, uh, so my question is, what drew you initially towards uh, mythology, and what's your current favourite story across all of the languages? Ah, um, what drew me to mythology? I, I don't know what drew me to mythology, I just remember loving it. I remember um, running across uh, probably the first encounter with, with mythology would have been running into Thor, um, the Marvel version, as a very small kid, and then discovering that my friend Stephen, who lived down the road, had a copy of Roger Lancelin Green's Tales of the Myths of the Norsemen, and uh, reading that just to try and understand more about the Marvel Thor and finding it was something else even weirder. <laughs> and then saving up my pocket money and going and buying a copy of Tales of Ancient Egypt, um, again by Roger Lancelin Green. And I would, have been, I would have been six, maybe seven, because mostly I remember after that agonizing about whether to file Roger Lancelin Green under L or G on my bookshelves. <laughs> and then many, many years later, 
um, I realized that actually none of my children had alphabetized their bookshelves. <laughs> and maybe this wasn't normal. <laughs> I, but, um, but I was this kind of six-year-old who was determined to have books in alphabetical order, just like in the library. Um, so really, I think, it, you know, Roger Lancelin Green was probably responsible initially, um, just these wonderful retellings. And I, um, favorite, favorite story, favorite myth or favorite story? You know, I, some of my very favorite stories, um, which, which I aren't very well known, so I will plug a, a, a book that is probably out of print, I hope it's still in print, it was called Giving Birth to Thunder, Sleeping with His Daughter. And it's uh, coyote legends, um, Native American coyote stories. And what I love about them best is that Coyote, um, who is a trickster, who is a creator, you know, he creates worlds, he creates people, he's amazing, he's a god, um, but he's an idiot sometimes too. And uh, you'll get some, one of my favorite stories is just where he gets into an argument with a rock. <laughs> and uh, the rock then just comes rolling after him and rolling after him and he's, has to avoid it, and eventually he swims the river, leaving the rock on the other side, and, and he gets across, and he thinks, shall I run away? And he goes, no, and he just turns, and he shouts insults at the rock, and it's like, hi, you stupid rock, I at least can cross the river, and you can't, and the rock just goes, <laughs> and crushes Coyote, and leaves him dead. And the last line of that story is, in those days you used to find Coyote dead like that all the time. <laughs> the lady here, please, in the, in the blue shirt. Hi, I have a question about the American Gods adaptation, um, which obviously the showrunner there was Brian Fuller, who was a very distinct kind of visual style and way of telling a story. And his last adaptation very much Hannibal, um, very much picked you know, pieces from here and there and made a whole new thing out of it. Um, I wondered, given what you were saying about control earlier and things not always necessarily kind of having gone the way you would have liked them to, how you felt confident with somebody with such a strong style actually adapting one of your books? You know, um, I, I loved Brian's style. I figured that anybody who was going to attempt to do American Gods needed a point of view. And uh, Brian, uh, Brian working with Michael Green, um, they had a point of view. And I think that was what convinced me to let them do it. There was a, there's a hand up at the back, sir. Gentleman, there he is. Thank you. Um, hello, and thank you for sharing this uh, movie. Uh, I really enjoyed it, and especially thinking that this is what the Sandman realm might look like. Um, I would like to ask, what, what is it you think that makes the Alice story so easy, or at least something that writers and creators of stories want to, to use and play with and tell stories of their own? And also, do you think that we will have a Sandman story at some point in another form other than the comics? Um, so to take the first part of the question, 
Um, I think one of the things that makes Alice work is um, Lewis Carroll, Charles Dodgson, was a remarkable writer and he did two things. One of which is he was genuinely funny. And, uh, you know, if, if you go even as a jaded adult to Alice and start reading it, there's, there are great jokes, there are great lines, it's beautifully written. Um, and it's, I think, the nearest that we get um, to feeling that something is operating on dream logic while still being satisfying as a story. Um, dream logic normally is incredibly unsatisfying. Um, you just have to have a loved one decide to tell you over breakfast <laughs> the details of their dream to discover just how unsatisfying these things are as stories. <laughs> and yet, um, in, in somewhere in the shape of Alice in Wonderland, um, it feels like you are in somebody's dream. And yet, it's always satisfying, always a little bit odd. And, uh, and, and it is funny and amusing. And it, you know, it's interesting to think that it's a story which can take Jan Schwenkmeyer doing that to it or Disney making it cute and sweet. And neither of them is Lewis Carroll's story, but both of them feel like valid adaptations. Um, will we ever see Sandman? I don't know. I'm, I'm, I've been... Um, 1994-95, people started in earnest trying to make Sandman movies. And now, every few years, it looks like there's going to be a Sandman movie, or it looks like there's going to be a Sandman television series. And um, when I was a kid in Sussex, there was a, there was a saying I, I heard occasionally old people say, which I haven't actually heard anybody say now in you know, sort of 30 years, but I used to love it. And they'd say, I've lived too near the woods too long to be frightened by an owl. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's, that's how I feel about Sandman. <laughs> Owls keep hooting. Every few years. Maybe one day something will happen. We'll take maybe one more question, because I don't know. Uh, the gentleman here, we'll take the gentleman with that beard. Okay. In the fourth row? Yes, I think so. Hello. As a master craftsman, you are able to evoke and manifest words from a blank page. And with the power of words, you create words. How do you choose those words? Is the sound, is the semantic, is the history of the word? How can you put together those words? Uh, how do you choose them? And do, you, do they come from somewhere? Or let's say, what are the criteria of how you write? A word in a page. That is that that that's a, a wonderful question in two ways. First of all, 
um, I have to say, nobody's ever asked me that before. <laughs> and in a lot of ways, it's the nicest question that anybody could ever ask a writer. Because one of the things that's really frustrating is nobody ever asks you about the words. Something like this, people will ask you about the stories and they'll ask you about what they mean. Um, and they'll ask you why you were doing whatever, but nobody ever says words. Let's talk about the words, why you choose the ones you do. Um, and of course, the flip side of that is it's probably the hardest to answer. Um, I love words. Words are, you know, they're your building blocks. They're the place that you begin. And you start out as a young writer without a style of your own. You've, you've seen lots of other styles and you've sort of gone, oh, that thing that person does, I want to try and do that. And, and that way this person here uses words. And, you know, I remember as a kid, even before words, um, falling in love with the way C.S. Lewis deployed brackets. Just little parenthetical statements to, as if the author of the book was suddenly talking directly to me. And I'd go, that's, that's, I like that. If ever I grow up to be a writer, I want to be able to do that. Because that's magic. Or the idea of doing footnotes. You know, things like that. Where you go, that's, there must be power and magic in that. Um, as you go on, there's a point where if you're a, a even relatively productive writer, after a few years you look around and you've written a million words or so. And by that point, you sound like you. And now you're not really looking at other people for styles. You may have a bunch of things in your head that you can do, but they're in service of you. You're not like going, ah, maybe I could sound like this, or maybe I could do that thing. Uh, you, you go into a story going, okay, am I ready to write this? No, needs a bit more. Am I ready to write this thing? No, needs a bit more. Ready to write? Yeah, I think I'm probably ready to write it. And then there, there's a beautiful Charles Fort line. American writer. He said, one measures a circle starting anywhere. And the most important thing about beginning to write is you begin to write. Um, when you get to the end, it, it is very, very usual for me when I finish a book to go back to the beginning as the next thing that I do. Because now, I, now it's ended, I know how it actually begins. And that normally wasn't where I began it. Um, and, you know, I even kind of got to do that with Sandman, where after it was all done, I got to write Sandman Overture and begin it again. Um, the actual process of picking words, you pick them, do you pick them for sound? You do if you're me, because I always want 
things to be capable of being read aloud. Um, do you pick them for meaning? Well, yes. Do you pick them for etymology? Do you pick them for um, occasionally going for, you know, Saxon words rather than Romance language words? It depends what you're writing. You do whatever you need to do um, to make it work. If it, in, in, you know, these are your paints if you were a painter. These are your musical notes if you were a composer. They're your raw materials. They're your building blocks. And you deploy using experience, guesswork, and luck the most appropriate ones you can in the sequence that you can, always in the knowledge that nobody in the whole world ever has to read your first draft. <laughs> and that more important than finding the right word is finding the next word. Because you can always go back one day and find the right word. On the grounds that nobody's going to beat that question. Ladies and gentlemen, Neil Gaiman, thank you.